You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been studying together around the theme of breaking free, which was, uh, which is an attempt to examine those areas in our lives where we are less than free to live the kind of lives we'd like to live or be the kind of people we'd like to be, be the parent we'd like to be, the spouse we'd like to be, the human being we'd like to be, the friend we'd like to be, the employer or employee we'd like to be. And we've been exploring this theme over the course of, uh, of a couple of weeks. And uh, at the very beginning of the series, I laid out what I thought were the four areas in many of our lives where we often feel the most trapped, the most held back, the least free, the things that make us uh, the most constricted. And I identified those four things as cynicism, self-doubt or insecurity, fear, and materialism. Cynicism, insecurity, fear, and materialism. And so today I want to talk a little bit about materialism, and I hope to do it in a way that isn't the kind of sermon you would expect uh, someone moralizing to give about that uh, topic, that concept, materialism. Because when you hear that word, you immediately hear the negativity in the word, and uh, you immediately assume that you know somebody who is uh, supposed to be speaking from a distinct moral tradition, um, though our senses of these things are influenced by the uh, puritanical uh, environment uh, in which most of us have been brought up in this country with its uh, deeply ingrained Protestantism and Puritanism. We hear that word materialism and automatically associate it profoundly negatively. And I want to suggest off the bat that Judaism doesn't view money as a negative doesn't view wealth as a negative. I think that God is extremely happy when we prosper and when we're able to uh, succeed and flourish in our lives. I think that that is a wonderful thing from God's perspective and it's a wonderful thing from human perspective, although there are some caveats to that. But wealth in and of itself is not a negative. Maybe it's a neutral, but it's not a negative. So. I want to say that off the bat. The other thing I want to say off the bat is um, there are, you know, any number of things that one is not supposed to talk about in polite company. Uh, religion is usually one of them. Politics is another one of them. Uh, and money is usually the third of them. And so, you know, you go to your family uh, Thanksgiving dinner or something like that, you know that uh, if you want to have a pleasant meal, those topics are generally off the table. Religion, politics, and money. Uh, and uh, those of you uh, who uh, have spent a little bit of time with me uh, know that uh, 
I don't consider those topics, any of them, to be off-limits for uh, this space of uh, worship together because religion, politics, money, those are things that are some of the deepest and most important parts of our lives. And how can we talk about what God wants for us in our lives, how we can live the best lives we possibly can if we, can, if we ignore those aspects of life. The Torah doesn't ignore those aspects of life, so I think neither should we. But money itself is a deeply sensitive issue that uh, a lot of us face from different sides and different uh, aspects in our lives. My guess is that for most of us, we experience money in the realm of anxiety around money. How are we going to have enough? That's usually how most of us encounter and experience money. And so therefore, it's a very complicated and sometimes upsetting thing to think about and talk about. So I want to just lay that out at the outset. And they say that uh, of the couple of things that are most often the causes of uh, strife and even divorce in marriages, money is in the top three if it's not the top one. So money's a big one. Money's a big deal. And I want to talk about it in the context of this series of breaking free because I think that money itself is something that binds many of us in our lives, holds us back in some ways from living the kind of lives that we want to live, from being as happy and as flourishing in the world as we ought to be and might want to be. So I started thinking about this some of you know that uh, Adira and I just uh, bought our first home. And we, you know, naive uh, young people that we are, we said to ourselves, okay, you know, this is great. We're going to buy our first home. We're going to have, you know, we're getting a deed to a piece of land. This is our land in the earth where we're going to stay. God, just so you know, this is our property, right? And we can shoot you if you come on it. And so, like, what an amazing thing. This is, I'm not going to, I don't even know. Um, everybody's welcome. To, uh, cool. What? At your own risk. Right. So, um, so we got this new house, this wonderful house, and uh, we quickly discovered that Home ownership <laughs> is uh, is not as liberating as one might think. So not only do you have to buy the home, and, but you have to continually making sure you have the uh, money uh, in your bank account to pay the mortgage each month for one. You have to pay to keep the lights and the heat and the air conditioning and the water running and flowing in the home, which is, turns out, much more expensive than when you're living in a small apartment. You have to pay to ensure there's no creepy crawlies in your basement. And when there are creepy crawlies, you have to pay to make sure that you can get rid of them. When something breaks, you got to fix it, and you're the one who's on the hook for fixing it. There's all sorts of things that go into the maintenance and upkeep of a home that make it on some level not such a liberating decision and it made me think about the reality that 
I am sure many of you have experienced in your lives that it's often not so much that we own our possessions, but very often our possessions own us. And so much of our lives becomes then dedicated to the maintenance and upkeep and increasing of our possessions. You know, so we just came off of this holiday season, right? And the essence of the holiday season in American culture is to, is to keep buying more stuff. But it turns out the more stuff you buy, the more stuff you need to buy. Right, so uh, for my birthday, which is around the holiday season, Adira wonderfully got me a grill, which we had to build. That's a whole other story. Uh, that was a project, but we got this grill. It's a wonderful grill. Hopefully, we'll have you all over for a barbecue, etc. Um, but you know, when you buy a grill, you can't just buy a grill. You have to buy like the propane tank for the grill, and then the propane tank is going to uh, uh, run out at some point. Then you got to get another propane tank, and you also got to get like the materials to clean the grill. And you got to get the spatulas and the apron that says "kiss the cook," and you know you got to get all this stuff because it's not always that we own our possessions. Sometimes our possessions make demands and dictates to us about what we need to do to keep up with our possessions. And so many of us end up directing and structuring our lives in order to maintain and keep up with what we have. And very often it's even more deep than that, that we do it in order to maintain and keep up with what other people have as well. When I was thinking about the sermon, I thought about uh, the, that famous line from uh, the Bruce Springsteen song, Badlands, where he says, poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, and a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. Because there's an element in our lives that uh, makes us not only want what we have, but continually want more than what we have. And so we direct and orient our lives to continually enabling ourselves to have more than what we have. So when I um, was uh, an assistant rabbi in Philadelphia, the community I was in um, was a particularly wealthy community. It's always on the top, like, you know, five lists of the wealthiest communities uh, in the country is the main line of uh, Philadelphia, mainline suburbs of Philadelphia. But wonderful, I mean, wonderful people. That's not, that the, the issue isn't, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, corrosive aspect of all wonderful people in that congregation. But uh, there's a book that was written about that congregation um, about a decade or so ago. You can read the book, although I don't necessarily recommend it because it's all Lashonhara. Uh, but uh, the book is called the book is called the New Rabbi. Uh, and in the book, they uh, the author Stephen Fried, who's a journalist, uh, was chronicling the. Uh, uh, experience of uh, Harzaim replacing uh, its longtime senior rabbi, Rabbi Gerald Wolfie, a blessed memory. And uh, it talks about the assistant rabbi at the time, a rabbi who's now in Milwaukee named Jacob Herbert, gave a sermon in which he suggested to the congregation that, uh, that they uh, devote 10% more of their time to spending their time with family. And even if that means spending 10% less time at work, and even if that means taking a 10% cut in their income and salary because of it, 
and there was a noticeable, like, gasping silence in the crowd because of it, and an audible couple of people who said, but we need that money. Right? And I wonder how many of us feel that way. If someone to make a suggestion to you to cut back your work hours and your work income by 10% to devote 10% more of your time elsewhere, or to give 10% of that income elsewhere, how many of you would feel that anxiety welling up inside of you? But we need that money. So our Torah portion, I think, offers some profound wisdom, profound insight uh, about this phenomenon that in many ways keeps us trapped in self-perpetuating cycles in our lives. So if you look at me at uh, your text sheet, we have the passage in our portion uh, in which the first celebration of Passover is commanded and the introduction to the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, is discussed. And it reads, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that on the tenth of this month each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let him share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby. In proportion to the number of persons, you shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. You shall keep watch over it until the fourteenth day of this month, and all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roasted, head, legs, and entrails over the fire. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to the Lord. For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt, I the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, many of us are familiar with the contents of what that passage is saying, right? If you've ever been to a Passover Seder, you know more or less the contents of what that passage is saying. But I wonder how many people have ever stopped to really think about and reflect on what that passage is actually teaching. Because it's a very strange thing, right? God is bringing this tenth plague on Egypt, the death of the firstborn. And for many of the other plagues, if not all of the other plagues, God is without 
any action on the part of the Israelites able to distinguish between the homes in the land of the Israelites and the homes in the land of the Egyptians, right? So when locusts come, they devour the crops of the Egyptians, but not the Israelites, right? Frogs infest the land of the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. But here, the Israelites have to do something in order to prevent God from killing their firstborn along with the Egyptians. Isn't that strange? Why does God uniquely in this plague want the Israelites to do something in order to protect themselves from, uh, from, from God's plague? So that's one question. The second question is, remember, this is the eve just before the Israelites are going to leave Egypt. So you would, it seems strange that the commandment that God has for the Jewish people as they are at the cusp of their liberation is not, hey, pack, because you're about to leave tomorrow morning, right? And if you're like, you know, one of these people who packs like a week in advance of your trip, I imagine that that text produces a lot of anxiety because God is saying, don't worry about packing. If anything, you're going to have your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, your loins will be girded, and that's all you've got. You've got to do this holiday you got to do this ritual feast instead of packing for this journey in the wilderness that you're going to go on, um, which he doesn't tell, God doesn't tell them, but may or may not take 40 years, right? So no packing, but you got to get a lamb and slaughter it. So that's the second thing that seems strange to me about this passage. The third thing that seems strange to me about this passage is remember that the Israelites have been slaves for several hundred years in the land of Egypt. What property, what possessions did they have? Now, I recognize, as I was talking with David Ruby about this uh, a little bit earlier, they um, either borrowed things from the Egyptians, or depending on your perspective, despoiled the Egyptians of their property. Right, so they ended up having a little bit of a pocket change to leave Egypt with. But put yourself in the mindset of a slave who has nothing to their name, and has never experienced having anything to their name. And God is saying, take a valuable possession, right? A sheep is no small possession, especially for a slave. Take a valuable possession and slaughter it. I can imagine the Israelites saying, do what? Don't you know that if you keep a sheep alive, you'll have milk for a, for a year, but if I slaughter it, I'll only eat for a day? How wasteful is that? Right? And not only that, but I'm not really keeping the meat of this sheep. I can only eat it, this lamb, I can only do it, uh, eat it until the morning. And what I'm really supposed to do with it, even more wasteful, is take its blood and paint it on my doorpost for what? Right? I can imagine a slave like incredulously saying, like, really, God? That's what you want me to do this night before I leave Egypt? Is take one of my only earthly possessions and destroy it? So here's the Torah that's being offered here. As Israel leaves Egypt, as they break free of this enslaved state of being. Those are precisely the lessons that God wants them to carry with them.
them as they leave. Egypt, remember, was probably the wealthiest society on earth at the time. And our tradition says that the Israelites were caught up in what they say 49 levels of impurity of Egypt. I mean to say that they were they were very influent. They they only lived in Egypt. They only know Egypt. They've been slaves of Egypt, but they're very influenced by the culture of the land and the people of Egypt, which is very oriented around keeping and holding on to and building up your possessions so much so that the pharaohs are buried in these incredible chambers filled with gold and silver and jewels. That is Egypt. And God is saying to the Israelites a handful of things here. When you leave Egypt, the way to really leave Egypt behind, the way to truly be free, is to do a couple of things. The first is, specifically, to be prepared to let go even of your most prized possessions. That, yes, it may be a valuable thing, that sheep, and you may be entitled to it, but also, in order to be truly free, you need to be prepared to let it go, as my daughter is wont to sing from time to time. You need to be prepared to let it go. And I'll never forget um, uh, one of, you know, the NPR Car Talk guys, um, uh, I forget their names now, I only think of them as Click and Clap, um, but one of them passed away a few months ago. Tom. Tom. Okay, passed away a couple months ago, and I was listening to an interview with him on the radio, and he was talking about um, how the, some of the accidents that he's gotten into, and he said something really profound about destroying his cars and like walking away and not really caring about it, he said, it's only a car. And I thought to myself, how profound is that somebody who's built his life and his career around cars, saying it's only a car? How deep is that wisdom? And I wonder how many of us could say to ourselves about our cars, about our houses, about our bank accounts, about our computers, about any of the things that we circle and orient our lives around, how many of us could say, it's only a house, it's only a car, it's only a sheep. But that is what God says to the Israelites as they're about to leave Egypt. The only way to be free is if you are able and willing to let go of your possessions. That doesn't mean it's not okay to have them. It doesn't mean it's not okay to build them up. But it's, a, it's how we approach them, how we think about them, what we give of our hearts and our lives and our souls to those possessions. Do we own them or do they own us? And God is saying the way to be truly free is to be in control over what you own, which means even be prepared to let it go. Because you don't serve your possessions, you serve the God of space and time. And then God says something amazing. God says, if the household is too small for a lamb, let him share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons. You shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. 
And then you see a little bit later on, you can't leave any of it over to the morning. The amount that you take for yourself needs to be proportional to your need. And I wonder of us, I wonder how many of us live by virtue of what we need rather than by virtue of what we want to have. And how would our lives be different if we structured them and lived according to what we need to have rather than what we want to have? And God is saying to the Israelites, the only way to be truly free is to know what you need and what you don't need. Be prepared, if you can, to share with other people. And so um, I was listening to uh, a, a friend of mine uh, who's a pastor uh, out in Goochland at uh, Hope Church, uh, Dr. David Dwight. He gave a sermon about money. And his argument uh, to his uh, West End Richmond congregation, which was a radical suggestion, was live beneath your means. Live beneath your means. It means that just because you make a certain amount every year doesn't mean that you need to max out what you, how you live in proportion to that income. Live beneath your means. What I take that to mean is, it's almost like the Japanese teaching of Hari Hachibu, which means eat until you're only 80% full, right? Because only then will you realize when you're full, right? But that's the objective. Don't live above your means, live at your means, live at your needs, but the only way at some level to know where your needs are is to kind of stop short of actually reaching that threshold. But in any event, the Torah says the only way to be truly free of our possessions, to truly take ownership and mastery over what we own, is to live according to what we need and be prepared to share with others everything on top of that. And then the third thing, the issue of why they're spending their time preparing for the exodus, celebrating a holiday, rather than packing for the journey. Because that in itself is the symbol, is the reminder of who they truly are and where they're going and what they're going to do. They are not leaving Egypt to take everything they own with them. They are leaving Egypt to be in service to the God of space and time. They are leaving Egypt for a higher purpose than just holding on to their possessions and building houses and living in comfort. That may be an additional part of it. That may, they may be free to do that, but that's not the point. The question is, who do you serve? And so many of us, even though we might say, oh, of course I serve God, in reality, if we look at our bank accounts, if we look at our expenditures, it's very clear who and what we serve. And so God is saying, don't worry about packing your possessions. Worry about orienting your hearts. Worry about orienting your souls. And from this, you get the sense, you get the notion that the point of redemption, the crux of redemption, the beginning of redemption was the establishment of Shabbat and the holidays. 
more than the plagues, more than the actual splitting of the sea, more than taking the Israelites out of Egypt, Shabbat and the holidays, an opportunity to step back from our lives, to say, I have enough right now, and I am going to dwell in my needs having been fulfilled and not in the pursuit of what I want, of being able to share with family and community all we have, of being able to orient our hearts and our souls around what we truly serve rather than what makes us in service to it. That's the point of Shabbat and holidays, and that's why the basics of redemption, the beginning of redemption, is God establishing the holidays and Shabbat for the children of Israel. So Rabbi Shalom Noach Berezovsky, the son of a Rebbe, says that it can be found that the redemption of the children of Israel began when Moses, our rabbi, of blessed memory, their redeemer, established Shabbat for them. For it was a small measure of life for them, and through its strength they were empowered. The way to be liberated and free in our lives, the way to even as we live lives where we hopefully flourish and prosper materially as well as spiritually take ownership over who we are in the world and what we ought to be doing in the world, how we can live as happy as we can be and as satisfied as we can be is by allowing ourselves to actually experience satisfaction. That's Shabbat. To stop the race of pursuing more and more and more and more. And thus our sages of blessed memory said, Israel was redeemed only on account of Shabbat. And thus Shabbat brings redemption to the world. I'm not necessarily sure about the world, but I can tell you that Shabbat, traditionally observed or as close to it as you can, will bring this kind of liberation and redemption to your life. Because instead of allowing our possessions to be our masters, it will enable us to be masters over our possessions, over our own lives, in service to God of